Good morning, good morning, good morning. This is the day the Lord has made, and we rejoice and we are glad in it. Uh, it's good to have all of you tuning in this morning and making us your church home for the next 30 minutes. I'm grateful, grateful for it, or more. Uh, we're going to give our brother, Dr. Stefan Wheelock, this morning uh, the time needed to, to share the word God has given to him. Uh, my name is Paul. I'm privileged to serve as pastor uh, of Victory Church of Charlottesville, where we exist to see people reconcile to God and to each other. Uh, and as I just referenced, Dr. Stefan Wheelock, uh, this morning he will be bringing the word to you, but I'm here because I just want to introduce him and say how grateful I am to the Lord for him and for all of us at Victory um, who call Victory home, who freely give that which is given to us, that meaning the, the word of God. And in so many formats here at Victory, whether Victory groups or whether through serving on a team or just occupationally, God has called us to steward that great commission written in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, uh, uh, wherever we are. And, and so I'm grateful for all of you. And this morning, grateful for Stefan, who in this format is willing to share what God has given to him. Um, I met uh, Dr. Wheelock a couple, I don't want to get into how many years ago, but but maybe a few years ago now, I probably had that timing off and was immediately struck by his uh, heart for God, his heart for people. Uh, over the last few years, he has been basically being called around the city to help consult um, uh, regarding uh, race and faith, race and Christianity in particular, and what it looks like for a people of God to grapple with our earthly historical uh, baggage in a way that moves us forward um, in advancing the kingdom of God, bringing glory to God's name and bringing uh, people together along the way. And so naturally there's been a fit for him right here at Victory again, where our vision is to see people reconcile to God and each other. Uh, he led a group for Victory last summer when we read through Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Great read, great study. Um, and he did so with uh, with grace and tact and, and, and respect and care um, and has just been an active participant in our community, as have all of you, um, to help us be better as a people. And so this morning he's here to to, to break open the word um, with us. And I'm going to go ahead and read his formal bio and then uh, uh, and then I will turn it over to him. We have some technological snafus, uh, snafus this morning. So um, while I'm reading his bio, I hope he comes on back um, and, and is able to be with us. Uh, somebody typing, come on back, Stefan, come on back. All right, Stefan Wheelock uh, received his PhD from Brown University in 2001 and is currently an associate professor of early American literature and religious studies at George Mason University. Uh, Dr. Wheelock has published numerous articles on the rise of early Black historical and religious investigation in America. Um, his first book, Barbaric Culture and Black Critique, Black Anti-Slavery Writers, Religion and the Slaveholding Atlantic, uh, published by the University of Virginia Press, examines the earliest attempts by Black polemical and autobiographical writers to describe the historical and theological consequences race slavery had on the development of the North Atlantic civilization. Wheelock has also played a leading role in fostering initiatives at Mason, such as the Academy in the Time of Racial Reckoning, which explores the way scholars potentially contribute to racial justice struggles in the U.S. and globally. Currently, he's working on a book entitled Promises Lynched, 
racial terror, religion, and the post-truth foundations of American identity. Um, and so again, as we are walking through these next few months in particular of transition, uh, pastorally here at Victory Church, uh, our traditional monthly sermon series in many respects will fall under the larger umbrella of our vision here at Victory, which is to be reconciled to God and each other. This morning, Dr. Wheelock uh, will be bringing the word. Next Sunday, we'll have Kate Martin, who is also a part of Victory, bringing the word. Uh, I'll come back on Easter Sunday. We'll have some others to be joining us in this way as well. Uh, so I just wanted to say just a, a, a small prayer uh, uh, today before we got started. Uh, and like many of you out there, I have been disturbed by the recent attacks on our Asian and American Pacific Islander communities uh, this week. And Lord, I just want to say right now that you are good and that you do miracles so great. And that, Lord, you know how to cover and to shield our brothers and sisters as they are going through this painful moment as they are experiencing something that has that traumatizes so has traumatized so many but god you are able you are able to heal and to restore to make anew lord i love those brothers from korean soul who did the remake of fred hammond's famous song no weapon formed against me shall prosper and Lord, we send out that word of love to our Asian American brothers and sisters, our Pacific Islander brothers and sisters, as they are attempting to reclaim who they are, to love themselves, to grow in the midst of this tragedy. Lord, be with them. Let us grow in solidarity with them. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen. So just a little bit of a background here. This sermon developed out of a devotional I um, worked on after January the 6th. And devotional is an expression really of my heart what God is teaching me, and I hope it blesses your heart. And the title of the, the, uh, of the sermon today, out of that devotional, is Losing Yourself in God's Love. Losing Yourself in God's Love. We cannot avoid the plain fact that the Savior makes an extraordinary demand on the lives of those who follow him especially from those who take their discipleship seriously. If I can confess for a moment, it feels sometimes to me like the Savior's wisdom is at odds with what is plain old common sense. And in Matthew 10, 39, in comments which don't seem to make any sense at all, Jesus says to his disciples that whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I don't know about you, church, but there has been many times I had a pretty, I felt as if I had a pretty good grasp on matters. 
I didn't think I was lost, and I certainly knew where I stood on a host of issues. For instance, I know how I like to dress. Even when my wife and I sometimes disagree on my choices and style. I know when I'm killing it with students. I'm a professor, by the way, in case you all didn't get that. I also know when I have completely flopped in either assigning students work or in conveying my ideas to my classes. I hate those days. I even know when my wife is, to put matters diplomatically, aggrieved by my behavior, and I know when to fall back. Say it to your neighbor, fall back when she know, when she lets me know that I'm acting like a knucklehead. And I believe I know when I'm on the right side of policy issues. Say when it comes to keeping kids in cages in the US border. Let me be clear. I don't think it is right to keep kids from their parents and hold them in detention facilities for indefinite periods of time. I admit, that's a sidebar. Anyway, what I'm trying to say to you all is that I feel like I have a pretty good sense of who I am and wish to be at this point in my life. So when I'm told that when I have discovered myself, that when I stand my ground, that when I view myself as wise in my own eyes, I'm lost. I get a bit bewildered. Oh, let me include some other folks in case it seems like what I'm saying doesn't apply to you. That when we, as God's people, rely principally and sometimes only on our gut, then leaning into the everlasting arms that we risk losing ourselves, when we retreat into the narrowness of our feelings and opinions and away from God's agape love and guidance, guidance that we are lost, the divine wisdom of the Lord sounds strange to us and it's tough to take to heart. But Jesus was cautioning his disciples to be mindful of their service to God and to be wary of the human tendency to lapse into arrogant self-certainty. That the only place where we truly discover who we are and we're meant to be is in his recovery of our souls. These truths were made plain to me on January the 6th of 2021. As I stared wild-eyed at the TV on that day, a mostly white mob stormed the U.S. Capitol with the goal of overturning the results of the election in favor of former President Donald John Trump. The mob clamored over the loss of their rights and freedoms. And in a desperate attempt to restore their privileges, they erected gallows to hang treasonous Republicans while also seeking to murder Democrats. Their ultimate aim 
was to declare President Trump the rightful executive of the nation. One man stood in the Capitol Rotunda, rather cavalierly, waving a Confederate flag in the halls of America's most sacred deliberative chamber for the first time in the nation's history. Police were assaulted by the mob. Five people died as a result of the carnage, and then people were simply allowed to just leave the scene of the crime with seemingly no repercussions for their actions. I was furious. All I could think was that Black Lives Matter, protesters would have been shot in the face if they tried something remotely like what we saw that day. White people had placed their feet on desks of lawmakers and took pictures while committing federal crimes. But only six months earlier, Black Lives Matter protesters were flashbanged, tear gassed, and intimidated by tanks on what was then called Lafayette Plaza for rightly protesting police brutality while seeking justice for the horrible deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. What a flawed and false sense of white entitlement these people had, I thought to myself. Presumably there were professing Christians among the rioters. Did the Christian participants in the insurrection give due consideration to the demand their savior, the God of love, forgiveness, and justice was making on them that day? Had they counted up the cost in following Trump's lie that if you don't fight, you will lose your democracy? Was this a sign, folks, that indeed we as a nation were losing our way? And then I did something which both troubled and embarrassed me regarding myself. Sometimes, if I could confess again, you act before you think and comic relief shows up just in time to aid and abet your foolishness. Amen, church. The week of January the 6th, I was sent a meme which had, quote, crackers scaling the walls of the Capitol. For those who are unfamiliar with America's racist language, let me tell you a little bit about it. The term cracker is a derisive word describing white folk. And for the moment, I never felt so amused in my life by one meme. I felt an affront to my blackness and what those rioters did. And I found the perfect way to vent my bitterness. But then God as he often does in our quiet moments of sin and failure, convicted and rebuked me. I could hear him speak. Son, you cannot allow the love I've placed in you to be extinguished. You must lose yourself in my love, especially now. We live in a dangerous time when our empathy for others seems generally on decline. Facebook, Twitter, and texting have driven wedges between us, alienating us from one another, allowing us to socialize, share our experiences, and air our grievances from the comfort of our keyboards and phones, where afterwards we simply retreat into the privacy and isolation of our lives. Then the pandemic hits, only to make these concerning tendencies worse. 
When I saw the meme of those saltines scaling that wall, I felt morally gratified in my private moment of self-righteousness. If those folks fell from that wall and injured themselves, if they were carted off to jails or shot, so be it. They got what they deserved, I thought. But in that moment of inflated self-certainty, my love for others felt also like it was growing colder. I wondered if I was losing a sense of the greater compassion Jesus has called all of us to under his grace. Jesus warned us of times like these. In Matthew 24, 9 through 14, he speaks soberly to the disciples that the growing unsympathetic tendencies in human beings would be harbingers for dark days which lie ahead. Jesus was asked by his disciples about the end times. And in scriptures which still remain bone chilling, he prophesied that in the end, nation would rise against nation and that there would be famines and earthquakes in various places. And in one especially poignant passage, Jesus warned his disciples that then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold i will repeat verse 12 and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved we could dwell on the apocalyptic fervor of these verses but because i don't want to lead us down a rabbit hole i would ask that we focus on verse 12. in verse 12's poignancy jesus reveals how the dark days of tribulation would begin suggesting that they would begin with our growing sense of callousness in the verse the greek word for lawlessness is anomia which translates as iniquity or general immorality and license. Jesus suggests to his disciples that there would be a growing symbiotic relationship between lawlessness and callousness. In other words, between the sense that we can do and feel whatever we want with no accountability toward God or regard for others and our growing sense of coldness toward others. Stay with me, church. In an era where empathy and sympathy are declining rapidly, we are being warned that people, even Christians, would cycle between callousness and lawlessness, between callousness and anomia, stoking their destructive tendencies while hardening their hearts. In a social context where lawlessness or anime reign, callousness would deaden our sympathies and instead cultivate a shared sense of inhumanity in all of us. And yet, we can praise God in knowing that he did not leave us in the lurch 
with ominous warnings, but instead provided us with a powerful antidote to our hardened hearts. That antidote is his love. As I close today, let me say what God's love is and what it is not and why it is important to anchor ourselves in the kind of love God models for and offers to us. We remember St. Paul's admonition, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude, irritable or resentful. Words to truly live by. We hear our Lord when he counsels us in Matthew 5, 26, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These verses suggest that when we were saved by God's grace and recovered from sin and shame, we were transformed, becoming now our heavenly father's precious love letters to a dying world. Jesus calls his disciples to lose their lives in righteous obedience to him, which includes losing our lives in a loving commitment to God's children, no matter who these children are. Losing oneself in the love of the Savior means obeying his higher law of forgiveness, imitating his agape love, even when you are absolutely certain and can verify that the other side is wrong. In this country, we like to emphasize the personal piety part of salvation, of the loving one's neighbor part. It better suits our individualist and cliquish tendencies. But God is love, and callousness is a sin which destroys our communities and spiritually deadens us. When we reach for God's love through loving our neighbors, we let Jesus in to do the spiritual repair we sorely need. And sometimes, the repair we didn't even know we needed. But church, don't get it twisted. This does not mean that God's love is cowardly and quiet in the face of injustice. Remember, church, that even the seven woes, that in the seven woes that Jesus speaks to the scribes and Pharisees, he pleads with this blind priestly class to first clean, their, clean the inside of their cup and dish so that the outside may become clean as well. Our Lord compares their pious and self-serving practices to, quote, whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. Jesus understood the severity of his words. In those days, tombs, even those whitewashed with lime were regarded as unclean. As the biblical commentator Alexander McLaren puts matters, Jesus's prophetic denunciation of the Pharisees and scribes was a model for love. As Jesus balances severe rebuke with sorrow over who these people were called to be in God, Jesus's balanced rebuke takes at least three forms. Very quickly, Jesus loathed the Pharisees' monstrous self-righteousness. But what we see in the scriptures is that he never stopped loving them. 
Jesus despises the peacockish devotion this class had to tradition, while they seemed to have little regard for the weightier matters of love and justice. But he loved them. Jesus was disgusted by their tone-deaf lack of compassion. Our Savior's complaint was that God's love was what anchored both the law and the prophets, and that God's laws weren't merely rules, but God's plans for healing and restoration. Even as that class failed to really understand what the Son of God was telling them, Jesus loved them anyway. We are also called to love them too, whoever those people are. The lessons we take from Jesus's prophetic denunciations are twofold. Love is not uncritical of wrongs, and oftentimes it does not lead easily to reconciliation with those who are in the wrong. What Trump's supporters did on January the 6th was not even outwardly beautiful, and yet they believed their cause to be righteous. So should Christians refrain from condemning the wrongs of January the 6th? No. Should we remain silent while the original sins of slavery and racial justice remain unatoned for and never effectively redressed? No. Should we go on ignoring the race and gender disparities which have left so many, so many poor, destitute, and broken while living cheaply in God's grace? Absolutely not. But being on the right issue also requires that we search ourselves to make certain that our hearts are in the place where God can use us. We can take heart in the fact that losing ourselves in obedience to God and in his love for others, we find not only ourselves, but the greatest expression of who we are. Thank you, Lord, that my laughs at means can be forgiven. Thank you, God, that I can rest in the truth of what that wise philosopher Andy Minio once described as last place with you as that place where I find redemption when at times I have been lost. When we lose ourselves for our Savior's sake, we have the perfect roadmap for who we can be and how we might truly heal together. I end today with a prayer for those whose hearts have been hardened, who can't reach beyond the unforgiveness that they feel for the people who have hurt them. Lord, our hearts can crust over with the enemy from the enemy. We can feel lawless at times, ungrateful, bitter. Lord, I know I've been there, been there. But God, your love is greater. Your love is greater than what this week produced. Your love is greater than what January the 6th produced. And for those who do not know you today, 
Lord, my prayer is that you begin to heal hearts and draw them nigh. Draw them to a space and place where they can find sanctuary in you. For those who are feeling that tug out in their hearts, who are out there trying to figure things out, who have found themselves lost in their hardness, in their callousness, my prayer for you today is that Lord has a place for you and that he's calling you home. That he is calling you out of your bitterness, out of your unforgiveness into his grace. If you do not have a church home, I would ask that you consider Victory Church as a possibility. We have ways to connect with you, both through our app and through Facebook. But if Victory Church isn't the home that you feel called to, my prayer is that you find a home that you can be called to. Lord, thank you for those souls who have heard your word and that it, that the seed of your word has landed on fertile ground and we are excited to see what God is going to do. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be your vessel today. Thank you for what you have done in our lives and what you will continue to do. In Jesus' matchless name, we pray. Amen.